The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen, church. Remain standing with me this morning as we continue our reading through the 119th Psalm. This morning we'll be in verses 73 through 80. This is the word of God. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live. For your law is my delight. And let the insolent be put to shame, because they have wronged me with falsehoods. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. And may my heart be blameless in your statutes, that I may not be put to shame. And all God's people said, you may... pray with me. Father God, we recognize that there is, because there is nothing in the universe that is higher or or greater or more worthy or more glorious than you. We recognize that we're fools to try and find satisfaction anywhere else. We recognize, Father, that you have created us for communion and relationship with you and that as long as we try to receive your gifts and find our ultimate joy and our real hope in those, we will always fall short. We will not only dishonor you, but we will rob ourselves of of what is best. So Father, each and every time your people gather together like this, we seek to glorify your name, to speak truth about you, to sing songs of praise. At the very same time, Father, we are seeking to find true joy and ultimate satisfaction in your presence. So, Father, as we come to your word now, as we stop singing songs back to you and wait to hear your word, Father God, would you help us to see you as you really are? Would you help us not to settle for watered-down, cotton candy pictures of who you might be, but to see you as you are, as you have revealed yourself, trusting that that is far greater than anything we could fathom? anything that we could conjure up in our own minds and imaginations. But Father, we know this isn't easy because we are still people surrounded by sin. We are still the people who struggle with sin. Even the things that we know, we do not see with perfect clarity. So we ask, Father, that you would touch us, that you would bring us to clear sight, a more perfect vision of you, and to revel in that. 
God, we ask that you would do this to your glory and for our good because it's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we ask it. Amen. So when we gathered together on the last Lord's Day, I asked you to consider a question. Why do some people hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and respond in repentant faith while so many others reject it? You'll recall that the Apostle Paul, he is writing to the saints who are in Ephesus. These are those people who have come to repentant faith, who have come to call on Jesus Christ as Lord. Now they lived in the same city, surrounded by the same spiritual darkness, many of them growing up in the very same homes as literally thousands of other men and women who viewed this gospel as utter foolishness. And so surely we ought to ask, why? Why does one man hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and respond in faith while so many other consistently press on clinging to their sin? As I submitted to you last Sunday morning, the answer can be found right here in this marvelous passage, right here in the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So let us return there together again. I ask you to stand to your feet, please. Reverence to the reading of God's word. I remind you that this word is inerrant, infallible, sufficient, and authoritative. It comes to us from God by his spirit on the apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And all God's people said, Amen, you may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? In your son's precious name we pray, amen. We're, of course, focusing in here on these first two verses in the text I just read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. As I told you last week, the word that Paul uses here in the beginning of verse four, even as, in Greek it is one word, kathos. It can be used to indicate either comparison or causation. It can be translated just as, or it can be translated because. And so I wondered aloud last week, what does Paul mean here? 
Is he saying that God chose us and that his choosing of us is in and of itself a spiritual blessing? Or is he saying that God's choosing of us is the cause, the source of all other spiritual blessings? As I said to you then, it seems to me that Paul very likely intends for this word to carry both of those connotations. That God's choosing of us most certainly is a supreme spiritual blessing. And yet, as I hope to make clear this morning, the only basis, the true and ultimate reason why anyone receives any of these spiritual blessings is the fact that God has chosen them. This is why one man hears the promise of the gospel. He believes on Jesus Christ. He turns from his sin. He turns to Christ and finds himself under the fount of God's endless blessing. It's because God first chose him based on nothing to do with the man, nothing that he has done, nothing that he will do, based on nothing but God's absolute sovereign will. He has chosen a people for himself. Again, I say, in love in accordance with his good purpose, before the foundation of the world, God chose those whom he would save through faith in his son. So it is my hope for our time together this morning to show you how I and so many others have come to interpret Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, and arrive at the conclusion that I've just given you. Now, last Sunday, we considered three alternative ways to understand, to approach this text. I did my best to present them to you one by one in as straightforward and fair and faithful a fashion as possible before then showing you where I believe that every one of them falls short. Now, I sincerely pray that I was gracious in the way that I handled that. You must know that Whenever I think about preaching and, and handling this text, seeking to deliver this truth to you, my concern, perhaps even some anxiety that creeps in, it's twofold. Far above everything else, I must do absolutely everything that I can to rightly express to you what I see the Apostle Paul actually means by what he actually says. My ultimate responsibility as your pastor is to glorify God by speaking the truth about him. Secondarily, I do not want to do anything to cause unnecessary confusion or frustration or discouragement or division in the way that I go about presenting that truth. Now, you must know that so many churches, they have focused exclusively on that first concern and they've forgotten about, excuse me, on that second concern and they've forgotten about the first. Far too many Christians, they've been taught that to even consider the doctrine of election. More than this, to make any kind of firm and bold statement with regards to it is both unnecessary and detrimental. Now, in fairness, many of them may have arrived at this place because there have been so many reformed men. I'm talking about men and women who come to the exact same conclusion. They hold the same interpretation of this text as I do. That many of them have somehow allowed their understanding of God's absolute sovereignty to turn them into insufferable jerks. It's often been said that whenever a man comes to embrace the Reformed doctrine, whenever a man comes to, to see these doctrines of grace, to speak plainly, whenever a man becomes a Calvinist, that someone should lock him up in a cage for no less than three years so that he does not destroy every relationship that he has. And let me be clear. The problem is not the doctrines of grace. The issue is not believing that absolutely nothing happens in this world unless God has willed it. The problem is that for some reason, some people who come to see these truths go on an absolute rampage. They become myopic. They have a one-track mind. All they want to talk about is soteriology. It's like a man who's just taken up a new diet. He's going to work in that, that information, that topic, into literally every conversation that he has. And he won't rest until he has converted everyone else. 
Anybody that he can't convert, he will either challenge to a debate or he will write them off as fools. His goal is no longer to see God clearly, to speak about him rightly, to worship him truly. His aim is no longer to study scripture and the Christian community with the hopes that we all grow together. This is about winning. Proving that I am right and showing you all the places that you are wrong. Oftentimes speaking the truth, but failing to do it in love. But church, I submit to you that if a man lands in this place, if a man allows the, the reality that God is supremely sovereign to cause him to walk with such arrogance, then surely he does not truly understand the theology that he professes. If you truly believe that God is supremely and unrelentingly sovereign over all things, I'm not just talking about intellectually. I'm talking about in the recesses of your soul. If you have truly felt the weight of that statement, the immensity of that truth, that nothing happens apart from the will of God, that in the words of Jonathan Edwards, that we contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin which made it necessary. If you truly believe this, you will be led to absolute humility. Not just with regards to your own salvation, but the way you talk about God, the way you think about theology. You'll recognize that anything that you may have come to know is nothing short of an absolute gift from God. It will cause you to be kind and loving and patient with others. In addition to this, you'll be so grounded in what you believe that you will no longer feel the need to protect it like a rabid dog. You'll be willing to come to difficult passages of Scripture and confess, I don't yet know what to do with this. You will not be compelled to run away from or view as enemies anyone who holds to a different view on this matter. You will welcome questions. You will not view as enemies those who ask questions, ask you to support why you believe what you believe. You have no problem with people raising doubts, getting inside your mind and poking around a little bit, arriving at different conclusions, even getting the last word. You will welcome all of these things. You will speak the truth. You will not be bashful in expressing what you believe. You will have no trouble opening up the scriptures and supporting how you have landed where you have landed. But the whole of your life will be marked by humility and love. Even when simply holding to these doctrines causes other people to hate you, you will recognize just how, worse, how much worse you deserve. So you will respond with grace. In short, the problem is not Calvinism. The problem is many Calvinists. So we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. We cannot allow this to drive us into the other ditch. We cannot afford to run away from these difficult texts and asking, what does God actually mean by what he has actually said? We can't just stick our heads in the sand and pretend like the words like chosen and predestined and election aren't found right here in Scripture. Frankly, that's the beauty to what we do here. That's the beauty to working verse by verse through entire books of the Bible. I don't get to run away from any of it. Therefore, neither do you. We as a people are going to come together. We're going to ask, what does God actually mean by what he has actually said? Therefore, my prayer this morning, my hope, is to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. And I need to prepare you. This will probably be, we will probably cover more ground this morning than I ever have or ever will in any other sermon. But my hope is that I will faithfully handle that Scripture I will boldly proclaim to you the truth of God as best I can understand that truth and then I will do it in a way that edifies both those of you that hold to the very same tradition that I do and those of you that land in an altogether different place. And then, God willing, next week, we will come back together and I will present to you and seek to answer the common questions that come up. Whenever a man first comes to consider for himself, has God really chosen? 
based on nothing but his sovereign good will. Has God really chosen who will and will not be saved? I know the questions that tend to come to mind. I know the concerns that come flooding into your mind and heart. And so my hope is that next week, I'll be able, pre- be able to present to you the most common questions that have been presented to me over these last few years and then give you answers for those. So for this morning, again, we ask the question, what does the Apostle Paul mean when he says that God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world? Now, you know our typical pattern. We've already done it with this verse. We take each word and we ask, what does this word mean? How is this word typically used? Well, the reality is we've done that. We know that when Paul says before the foundation of the world, he literally means before there was a world. He uses the word chosen here just as you and I use the word chosen. It means literally to select, to choose, to pick something for ourselves. We've talked about in Christ ad nauseum. We know what it means to be found in Christ. We know the necessity of being found in Christ. We know why a man must be found in Christ, and it's only there that spiritual blessings can come. But that still doesn't solve the debate. And so we must seek other ways that Paul has talked in these terms. We must look to other passages of Scripture where Paul seems to be talking about this very same topic. But before we do this, may I submit to you that we can have some insight into Paul's train of thought based on merely the flow of his writing. Consider where he begins. As the Apostle Paul moves from doxology to doctrine, as he begins to lay out to us just the enormity of these spiritual blessings, as he begins to enumerate these grace, this grace of God that is poured out into the life of his chosen people, I want you to think about where he begins as he sweeps us up into heaven with him, as he pulls back the curtain and gives us this cosmic view of our salvation. Where does he begin? Now, I've often said that man, more often than not, he begins with man. We begin at the level of our own experience. And we might have expected the Apostle Paul to do the same. We might have expected him to say, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And those blessings have come to us because we have repented and believed in Christ. But Paul doesn't start there. Paul doesn't begin on the road to Damascus where Christ first revealed himself to him. Paul doesn't draw these men to think back to the day of their own conversion. Instead, Paul starts in eternity past before the foundation of the world, before any of these men were born, before Christ had even come. Paul begins in the beginning. Now, I'll mention this to you briefly in passing last week, but I really do think that it's critical. Why did Paul start here? If what Paul is saying is that God has given us everything that we could possibly need to live lives of holiness today and glory tomorrow, why would we care whether those spiritual gifts had been given to us yesterday or in eternity past? Surely it is this. That God is wanting to make clear, fundamentally, absolutely clear, leaving no doubt that you're being chosen, that the basis for your salvation has nothing to do with any of the things that happened within time, had nothing to do with anything that you did or would do. They were wrapped up only in his eternal, sovereign decrees. This seems to be exactly what Paul's driving home in the ninth chapter of his letter to the church in Rome. Now, we, we don't have time to work through this passage word by word like I would like. In, in God's good timing, we'll work through the book of Romans, and it will take us 25 years, and then I'll retire. But lots and lots of really bad theology comes from just plucking a verse out of the middle of a chapter, considering a text outside of its context. That's, that's a very dangerous way to do theology. And so I ask that you would allow me then to lay this out for you. So... Chapter 9 of Romans comes right after chapter 8. 
that's high-level hermeneutics for those of you that were wondering. Chapter 9 comes right after chapter 8, and in chapter 8, at the end of chapter 8, Paul is glorying in the, the promise that the God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, that he will never forsake his people. He is calling these saints to rest in the assurance that there will be nothing in all the world that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Now, Paul no sooner says those words than his heart is immediately drawn to his Jewish brethren. He says this at the very beginning of Romans 9, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul is heartbroken. Paul is filled with sorrow at the awareness that so many the majority of the Jewish people, these people to whom God has given the covenants and the law and the promises, that so many of them, all but just a small remnant, are lost. Despite having every possible privilege, most of the Jewish people, they're accursed, cut off from Christ, having stumbled over and rejected the gospel. Paul says that he wishes he could take their place. He knows this is not possible based on everything he's just said in Romans 8. He knows it is not possible, and yet he's so overwhelmed with sorrow at the thought of their lostness that he says, if it were possible, I would take their place. I would be the accursed one because he's wrecked, knowing that so many of his Jewish brethren are not saved. And that's the context in which he is writing here in Romans 9. And then seemingly to prove to us that Paul has never broken this train of thought, if you look at the very first verse in Romans chapter 10, he continues, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. So Paul is clearly speaking here about salvation, the eternity of Jewish souls, men and women from this nation who have rejected Christ, they are under the wrath of God. Paul is feeling the weight of their lostness. But this creates a great tension, doesn't it? How can these Christians, how can these people who have come to faith in Christ trust that God will not forsake them? How can they rest in the assurance that nothing will separate them from the love of God in Christ when so many of God's chosen covenant people called Israel are now perishing? Surely we must ask ourselves the question then, has God's promises failed? Perhaps have the sins of the people of Israel somehow thwarted God's plan? What has happened that has separated these people? Now, clearly this is the tension that Paul is feeling. Because if God has been unfaithful in fulfilling his promises to Israel, or perhaps something that Israel did undid God's promises, then we have no basis for holding tight to the promise that those of us who are found in Christ will endure to the end. Are you following me? That's why in verse 6 Paul says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Paul asserts that God is not unfaithful. He asserts that his promises have not failed. He asserts that nothing in all the earth can stop God's plan. God's word has not failed. He explains, for not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. In short, what Paul is saying is that God's saving promises did not belong to all of national ethnic Israel, but to true spiritual Israel. This is much like the reality that many people who come and call themselves members of the church are not actually of the church. There's all kinds of people that show up on any given Sunday morning. The majority of them claim and even believe that they are Christian. They are followers of Christ. And so I stand up in the pulpit. I look to all those people believing their profession, and I say something like, dear brothers, dear sisters, Christians, God has 
given you every spiritual blessing in Christ. They are already yours in the heavens, and you will never lose them. But the reality is that some people to whom I'm speaking, some people who count themselves as Christian, some people who have outwardly associated themselves with a physical church, they are not of the church, therefore they will not receive those promises. They come here physically, they sit in the pews, but spiritually they've never been united to Christ. This is the warning all throughout the Old Testament, over and over and over again. Don't think that just because you belong to Israel that these promises will be yours. Repent and believe. And so this is something like the picture of the visible church, that not all who belong to the outward, physical, corporate church are actually of the church. That's the essence of what Paul is saying here. Not all of Israel is Israel. God's saving promises have not failed, even though so many people who call themselves Israel are lost and perishing. It's not that God's promises were no good. It's not that they undid those promises. It's that they did not belong to them in the first place. So, to make this point a bit clear, Paul goes on to talk about the father of the Jews, the first Jew, the man called Abraham. Paul says that not everyone who was born physically, that everyone who descended from Abraham by blood was his true offspring. He says that Abraham's true children, his true offspring, are not children of the flesh, but they're children of the promise. He also uses the phrase children of God. So you've got here the, the visible national Israel, and then within that, you've got true spiritual Israel. You've got the physical, natural children of Abraham. And then within that, you've got the promised offspring, the children of God. Are you following me? That's always the way this works. There's always some smaller true group within the greater. But Paul says here that the promise of God have not failed, even though so many of Israel are lost, because God never intended for all of physical Israel to be saved. That these promises, these saving promises, they were only for true spiritual children, true spiritual Israel. Then he reminds us of the way that promise came. He gives us two examples, two pictures from the life of Abraham and his children that make this even more clear, these Old Testament illustrations. First, he points to Ishmael and Isaac. You remember that God had promised that uh, Abraham and his wife Sarah would conceive a son. Now, Abraham and Sarah, they got tired of waiting on God. They looked around them and they saw no possible way that he could fulfill this promise because Abraham was an old man and his wife was barren and past the point of child, uh, child, rearing, child rearing. And so they decided they were going to take matters into their own hands. They said they were going to help God in fulfilling their promises. And so Abraham goes in to this slave, this woman called Hagar, and she bears him a child of flesh, this child called Ishmael. But that's not the way that God works. Abraham should have been patient. He should have been faithful. He should have trusted in God to fulfill his promises. And yet that did not thwart God's plan. Even Abraham's unfaithfulness, even his refusal to wait upon God, did not stop what God had promised. So that against all odds, going against everything that is natural and normal and expected in this world, this once barren woman, this man who is as old, as good as dead, they bore the child of promise, the promised heir, the promised child, this one called Isaac based not upon the willing or working of man, but on the promises and the power of God. Through his working alone, according to his promise, the heir was born. This promised child is called Isaac, and the promises of God, therefore, went to Isaac and not to Ishmael, even though they both came from the same man, even though they were both born to the same nation. Only one had been chosen by God to receive these blessings. Now, we might be tempted to think, well, 
Perhaps the reason that Isaac was the child of promise, perhaps the reason that these blessings have come to Isaac and not to Ishmael is owing to their mothers. You remember that Ishmael's mother, Hagar, she was an Egyptian slave. She was not an Israelite free woman. And so perhaps that's the issue. Or maybe we know that Ishmael was a teenager by the time that Isaac came along. So maybe Ishmael did something that thwarted God's plan. Maybe Ishmael did something that disqualified him from these promises, and that's why they passed on to this son called Isaac. So it seems to me that God is perhaps anticipating these objections. He knows how difficult it is for us to grasp the reality that he literally and sovereignly chooses whomever he will based on nothing but his good pleasure. And so we start looking for reasons. We start looking for differentiators. We start looking for excuses as to why God may have chosen one man and not the other. Maybe it was because of Hagar. Maybe it was because of something Ishmael had done. Maybe it was because of something that Isaac would do. And so therefore, God goes a step further. That's where I pick it up in verse 10. He says, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather, Isaac. So Paul takes us to Isaac and his wife, Rebekah. Rebekah got pregnant with twins. So we have Isaac, the child of promise, and his wife. One man, one woman, one womb, all at the same time. Do you see what God is doing? He's taking away any differentiator, any excuse, any reasoning that we might come up with in our own mind as to why he would choose one son over the other. He eliminates all those for us, and we're right back at the heart of the original question, aren't we? Why does one man receive the blessings of God while another does not? Why does one man come to saving faith while the other continues on lost for eternity? God tells us, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. Do you see? This is the point. This is why God says in Ephesians that it was before the foundation of the world. He's pulling back the curtain. He's pulling back the veil. Again, he is showing us. He's removing any thoughts that we might believe that he has chosen who he has chosen because of anything within us, because of anything that we have done. These men were not yet born. They hadn't made good choices. They hadn't made bad choices. One of them hasn't chosen to be obedient to God and to follow him in faith, and the other one rejected him. They were not yet born. He strips away everything that we could have, every thought that we could have that could insert something other than his sovereign decree is the reasoning behind his choosing. Though they were not yet born and had done, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Now, it's one of those uncomfortable phrases, Right? We hear election, God's purpose of election, and immediately our walls start to go up. We start to determine all the things that this can and cannot mean. And yet what the Apostle Paul says here is this is explicitly why this has happened. This choosing, this choosing of God before the children were born, same children, same father, same mother, same womb, same time, had done nothing good or nothing bad. He did this. He chose one and passed over the other explicitly so that he could show us so that he could continue on in his purpose of election. Again, he's making undeniably clear that he has chosen certain men for salvation based on nothing but his sovereign will. In fact, he reverses the normal. He thinks, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Surely the first child to, born is the, to be born is the older, right? Even with twins, you have an older twin and a younger twin. So what does God do? He says to make clear to you that it doesn't even have anything to do with birth order. The expected birth order that the older would receive the blessing he says to Rebekah, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. You still with me? Now, I recognize that 
when we're talking about Ishmael and Isaac, when we're talking about Jacob and Esau, we're talking about men who grew into nations. The entire people groups came from these men. And I also recognize that there were certain non-salvific blessings that God give, gave to Israel that he did not give to Edom. I realize that. But again, we must realize the context in which Paul is writing. What is the burden on his heart? Is the burden on his heart that Esau's family didn't receive the cattle, the children, the land? No, his concern, his passion, the burning deep within his heart is over the lostness of people of Israel. Do you understand this? We've got to read this in context. That's the subject that Paul's writing about here in Romans 9, the salvation of individuals. That's what he's heartbroken of. These Israels who are cut off from Christ, he's, a, he's addressing this, the lostness of men. So Paul shows us God's purpose, his working in electing some men for himself to salvation and passing over others, and that this has always been the way he has worked with men. He's taking these Old Testament pictures, even these pictures that also have non-salvific uh, aspects to them he's saying you can look here and you can recognize that from the very beginning God has always been a choosing God based on nothing but his good purpose you can go all the way go to Noah go to Abraham go to Isaac go to Israel go to the disciples go to everyone that God has chosen for himself this is always the way that he works he chooses the weak and the lowly and the meek and the despised to make absolutely clear that it is nothing within man this is how God has always worked because this is his very nature. You remember that we talked about Exodus 33 last week. We find here in Romans 9, Paul pointing to that very same thing in verse 15 where he says that I will have, God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. Again, God is not just revealing the way he has done something. He's revealing something about himself. That that's what it means to be the I am. That's what it means to be the sovereign Lord of the universe, that I choose whom I give mercy to. I choose whom I give grace to. And we must remember this at all times, that grace is the gift, that grace cannot be demanded, that we cannot demand that God gives grace to everyone equally. Therefore, it would, if that happened, it would stop being grace, that this is what it means to be the I am. Let me finish working through my thought here in Romans 9 before we move back to the, this morning's text. Because we could still argue that this little detour hasn't settled anything, Right? We can still argue that this little detour we've taken into Romans 9, it hasn't made any clear to us what Paul means when he says that God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Because all we have established is that God's choosing is not based on race or family. We've established that God's choosing is not based on anything that man has done or would do. But you people already knew that. There was none of you that walked in here this morning believing that you had a immediate pass to heaven because you were born into some family or to some nation or some race. And there's not a one of you here that thought that you were going to inherit eternal life because you had been a good boy. None of you. But what many of you have been taught is that the reason that God has chosen you was because of your faith. That the reason that God has chosen you was because he foresaw your faith. Well, listen to what Paul says next, verse 11. Though they were not yet born and not done anything, good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Listen to that again. That before they were born, it had done good or bad. Jacob was going to receive these blessings and God was going to pass over Esau. As he proclaimed, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. He does this to make clear his purpose of election. Not because of works. Now if I just start that sentence and stop, where does your mind go? Think for a second. I say to you, his purpose of election, not according to works, and you immediately think, but because of faith. 
because that's what we believe, and it is true. We know that man is not saved by works. He is saved through faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the apostle Paul is not talking about the means of salvation here. Paul spent Romans 3, 4, and 5 making clear to us that our righteousness comes through faith, not through works, that we are justified by faith, that the only way we can be right with God and and inherit eternal life is through faith. He's now talking about the purpose, the cause. He's giving us insight into how all this happened. You with me? In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls based on the purpose of the one who calls. That's the reason. That's the answer. It's not ultimately our faith, although our faith will come. It is because of the calling of God. Go back to Romans 8. What does he seem to say? That this calling is a thing that elicits faith. That this calling which guarantees justification, within there must be faith. That the only way he can guarantee that those who hear his call are justified and ultimately glorified is if faith comes. And he's saying here that the reason for our justification, the reason for our standing with God, the reason why we receive these blessings, the reason why he has chosen whom he has chosen is because he is the God who calls. You see this, right? That God held on to a small faithful remnant while allowing the rest of them to continue on in their sin. God worked through supernatural means to bring about this child of promise. God reversed the expected birth order to select the younger twin over the older to make unmistakably clear to us that his purpose in election, his choosing of us before the foundation of the world, it was not based on works, and it was not even based on faith. It was based on his sovereign will. Dear children, this is the doctrine of unconditional election. And I know where some of your minds go, but what about free will? Where is free will in all of this? Well, it's funny you should ask. Because you look in verse 16, he says, he's fixing to talk about those that have been hardened, those that have been left. But he, he says right before this, verse 16, so then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. I'm going to say that again. It. What is it? Everything that we're talking about. God's choosing, his saving, his mercying, his extending of grace, his choosing whomever he chooses, it does not depend on human will. Could he say it any more explicitly? If you were God and you wanted to express to people, it's not about your will. It's not about your choosing. It's not about anything that you have done. What would you say other than, it's not about your will. It's not about your running. It's not about your working. It's about me. all about God. Now, I know it's a long time to spend on another text, but I think it gives us insight into how the Apostle Paul thinks. It shows us his theology. It shows us the way he works through this concept and what he means when he says things like, God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And I pray that you see this. I pray that you see the, in this glorious passage why here in Ephesians he goes to the foundation of the world before the foundation of the world. Why he pulls back the curtain. Why he doesn't just say, hey, these, these blessings were yours. They have been granted to you. Just receive them. He says, I'm going to take you back to the beginning. Before there was a world, before you were born, before you had done good or bad, before there was any evidence of faith, before there was anything, before the foundation of the world, it began with God. It was all of God. And it had to be. Because you were dead. Spiritually dead. 
Therefore, as we go back and we look to Ephesians 1, I want you to just take note of the verbs. Take note of the actions. Take note of who is doing all the stuff. Verse 3, God blessed us. Verse 4, God chose us. Verse 5, God predestined us. Verse 5 again, he adopted us. Verse 7, God redeemed us. Verse 8, God lavished grace upon us. Verse 9, God revealed a mystery to us. Verse 11, another reference to God predestining us. Then verse 12, finally, the first reference to someone hoping in Christ. And then verse 13, our belief in him. Dear children, I I know how hard this can be. We want to turn this completely upside down. We want to begin with man. We want to begin with our experience because, number one, that's the way we share the gospel, as it should be. We call men to repentant faith. So their first experience with the gospel is a call to repentant faith and their response in repentant faith. So for many, that's the first thing they know in this world, this new spiritual life. And so it's hard not to begin there. I know how impossible this is, but Paul is screaming it from the rooftops. I mean, he is beating the drum. He is screaming it from the rooftops. It is all the sovereign will of God. You didn't choose. But again, I must stress that this in no way minimizes the absolute necessity of faith. God willing, we will address this in greater detail next week, but anytime someone encounters this doctrine of unconditional election for the first time, they they instinctively start to wonder if what I'm actually saying to you is, well, then if God has chosen me, then none of the decisions I make in this world really matter. Because you're saying that if God has chosen me, that I'm guaranteed to be saved, then there's no need to read my Bible, there's no need to pray, there's no need really for repentant faith because it's a done deal. But that's not the biblical picture at all. Do you understand? The doctrine of God's sovereign election and the reality that man is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, these things are not contrary to each other. The key is in understanding their relationship. As I told you last week, some men believe that God's election of us is contingent upon our faith. I believe that the Bible teaches that while our justification is contingent upon our faith, our faith is contingent upon God's election, God's choosing. I'm going to say it again to make sure we're on the same page. I wholeheartedly affirm that unless you come to repentant faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, you will not be saved. And at the same time, I see overwhelming evidence all throughout Scripture that no man can or will come to saving faith in Jesus Christ unless God has chosen to work this faith in them. Because man is spiritually dead. He is so hardened in his heart by his sin and enslaved by Satan that his mind, his will, his emotions, so corrupted that he's morally incapable of responding in repentant faith to the gospel. Therefore, God must do a work in us. In the language of Ephesians 2, he must make us alive together with Christ. And then is that very first act, that, like a newborn baby that comes out of the womb, is that, that first cry, that first response, that first gasp of air, we respond in repentant faith. And I'm going to show you in Scripture where I find this. I want you to consider first, before we move back out of Ephesians, I want you to consider the prayer that Paul offers in Ephesians 1.15. He's thanking God for these saints who are in Ephesus. Specifically, he is thanking God for their faith. Why would Paul thank God for their faith? I can understand thanking God for sending Christ and offering the gospel. I can understand thanking God for sending Paul there to proclaim this gospel. I can understand them thanking God for a plethora of things. But why would you thank God for the faith of men, unless it is God who has granted them that faith. I understand that's just an inference. Paul doesn't say it explicitly here, so let me show you some other times that he does. 
2 Thessalonians 2.13, he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. Again, Paul is thanking God for the saints. This is a normal pattern for him. He's thanking him. Why? Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. God chose these men to be saved. He saved them through the sanctification of the Spirit and through belief in the gospel. Surely you see what is the cause and what is the effect here. God chose them to be saved through faith. Faith is the instrument. It is through faith that men are saved. Therefore, if God has chosen you to salvation, he will work in you the faith that is necessary. You seeing this? Or in his first letter, that very same church, 1 Thessalonians 1-2, we find him thanking God again. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly remembering you in our prayers, remembering before God our Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness in hope to our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, he's giving thanks for these. Verse 4, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. So many people often ask, well, how can you know who God has chosen? That, that's where a lot of the anxiety comes from, doesn't it? We begin to look at our children. We begin to look at ourselves. We begin to look at our spouse. We begin to look at our neighbors, the people that we're sharing the gospel with. And we wonder, how could you ever know if God has chosen someone? Is it possible for me to know whether or not I have been predestined to salvation? The Apostle Paul says yes. He says, brother, we know that he has chosen you. How does he know this? For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul knows that these men have been chosen by God. He knows this because when the gospel was preached to them, they responded in faith. Not just with human actions, not just with empty words, with full conviction in the power of the Spirit. Do you understand? How can he make such a bold statement? How can Apostle Paul say, I know that you have been chosen? He says, because you have come to faith. You cannot generate this faith unless you've been chosen. I see the faith in you, therefore I know that you have been chosen. You have been predestined. It's not the opposite. It's not the opposite. He doesn't say, you have come to faith, therefore God has chosen you. And so what does Paul do? Does he have some, some, some chosen goggles that he wears? Some predestined goggles that he wears? Whenever he goes out to share the gospel, does he say, Prove to me that you're spiritually alive. I don't want to waste this gospel. I don't want to preach these words. Now, I've heard about some. I mentioned earlier there's a problem with some Calvinists. There are some Calvinists that will literally refuse to allow their children to sing Jesus loves me because they say Jesus might not love you. They refuse to say to someone God loves you because God might not love them. I don't see that in Paul. I don't see that in any of you. Instead, what Paul did is he went out and he sowed seed liberally. We see him and Barnabas sharing the gospel in the synagogue in Antioch, and he's sharing the gospel of salvation, and many of the Jews were filled with jealousy, and they're seeking to oppose Paul. We read in Acts 13, 48, but when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Those who were appointed to eternal life, those whom God had chosen for eternal life the same gospel that drove the jews away the same gospel that many of the gentiles heard is foolishness and didn't care anything about those whom god had appointed he gave them ears to hear eyes to see and hearts to believe the gospel they believed because they had been appointed to eternal life 
much like the woman called Lydia. You remember her? Acts 16, 14, we read that God opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. Beloved, this is the pattern of the whole Bible. The man's hardened heart, that by nature we are so dead to the spiritual things, blinded to the glory of God. All the things that we talked about last week, unable to comprehend. You cannot even see the kingdom of God. That's where natural man is. Therefore, God must act upon him. God must act in him or he will never come to repentant faith. But God, by nature, doesn't do thing on, things on the fly. God is not a responding God. God is not a learning God. So by definition, God has a purpose and a plan, and his purpose and his plan are outside of time, above time, before time, before the foundation of the world. Are you with me? This is why Paul said to the young I mean, I'm just going to keep beating you with these until you tap out. This is why the Apostle Paul told the young pastor Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. If a man is going to escape the snare of the devil, if a man is going to stop being a child of wrath and become a child of God, he must be granted. God must give him. It is a gift of repentance. Surely you see this. Now, how is the, how is the pastor Timothy to preach the gospel to this man? Does he tell the man, sit there. I'm not going to waste my words on you. Let's see if God grants you repentance. Does he talk about any of this at all? No, that's pastoral talk. That's theological talk. When it comes to evangelism, when it comes to sharing the gospel, when it comes to boots on the ground, you look a man in the face and you say, repent and be saved. And if he repents and is saved, you don't praise him for his repentance and faith. You praise God. Thank you, God, that you have chosen to work in this man to bring about repentance and faith. Surely you see this. This is, the, this is the theology of Paul. This is what it means when he says that God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. But, is this also the theology of Jesus? What about him? He preached such a seemingly simple message. The kingdom of God is at hand, therefore repent and believe in the gospel. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Surely what this means is whosoever, whosoever chooses that every man is empowered, every man is enabled, that whosoever chooses to come in repentant faith, that those are the ones that will be saved. Jesus doesn't talk about God choosing, does he? Jesus doesn't talk about men unable to come to him in repentant faith, does he? I would submit to you, if that's what you believe, to go back and reread the Gospels and pay particular attention to the way that Jesus relates to those who don't come to him in faith. Now, he holds them responsible. Consider Matthew 11. Jesus has just finished pronouncing a curse upon the unrepentant cities. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in dust and ashes. Woe to you, Capernaum. You think that you would make yourself into a lofty city? If Sodom had been given the blessings that you had been given, it would stand to this day. He's saying there's things that could have been done in Tyre and Sidon and Sodom that would have brought them to repentance, but those things didn't happen. You had all the blessings that they didn't receive. You had all the insight. You heard all the teaching. You saw the mighty works, but you would not repent and believe. 
Now, we know that Jesus is heartbroken over this. We know the picture of him standing over Jerusalem and mourning for them, knowing what's coming upon them. We know that God does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. And so we have Jesus here. He's just sent out the apostles. He's just sent them out on their first missionary journey. And not very many people came to believe. You would, have, you would sense here that he would be greatly discouraged, that maybe his purposes have been thwarted, that maybe his plans are falling apart, that maybe this gospel isn't enough, that maybe he didn't try the right tactics, that maybe they should have packed up and gone to Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and done something to protect those cities, to bring them to repentant faith. But instead, what do we find Jesus saying here in Matthew eleven twenty five? 25? At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. And revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such is your gracious will. He's not discouraged. He's thanking God. He's praising the Father that he has hidden these things from the wise and the understanding. Doesn't this sound like 1 Corinthians 1? where it says that God did not choose the wise and the powerful and the lofty. He didn't choose all the things, people that you would have expected him to choose. He chose those that were nothing to make clear that all boasting was in him. He's saying, you've hidden these things from the high and the lofty and the proud, and you have revealed them to babes, that this was your good will to reveal these saving truths, to extend this saving grace to those you have chosen and hide it from the others. Do you see? You might be tempted to think, well, he's not talking about salvation here. He's not talking about anything with, with regards to eternal life. Maybe he's just talking about these works. He's just talking about the, the show of the miracles that he could have given them. Well, he continues in verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. In John 17, 3, Jesus says that this is eternal life, that they know you, the living God, and your Son, Jesus Christ. That to know God is the very epitome, it's the picture, it's the essence of eternal life. And he's saying here that no one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And the only people who will know God are those whom I have chosen to reveal him to. This is the whole of Jesus' ministry, too. We get to the end, John 17, the high priestly prayer. Again, he talks about this reality. That to know God and to know Jesus Christ, his son, that this is eternal life. And then he prays, Father, I've manifest your name. I've revealed you. I've manifest your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and I have kept them in your word. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. I'm praying for these whom you have given me. You cannot read through the Gospels. You cannot look to the ministry of Jesus Christ and not come to the absolute conclusion the Father had a people. The Father gave those people to the Son. The Son revealed the Father to those people, and therein they were saved. He's praying about that right here. It's the story of John 10. I have to move really fast here, but John 10, 14, we see Jesus saying that I am the good shepherd, I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Again, we see a peculiarity here. We see that there are certain people, not all the people of the world, that there's the world and then there's the sheep. There's the world, then there's the Father's people. There's the world and there's those that have been given to Christ. He's saying, I'm laying down my life for these, for my sheep, that I know them. I know those who are my sheep. In verse 3, he says that I know them by name. We referenced this last week. You know why he knows them by name? 
because their names had been written in his book before the foundation of the world. He says, I know them, and they know me, and that there's other sheep that I must bring into this fold, not just Jewish sheep. There are other sheep. I'm going to have one fold, one flock, one group, all with my sheep. Now, some Jews come to Jesus, and they're upset by what he's saying. He's talking about laying down his life and taking it back up again, and this seems to them to be, to be blasphemous. And so they, they, they come to him sometime later. We don't know how much later, but he's there in Jerusalem. And they, they come and they say, Jesus, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? John 10, 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe. They had seen the same works. They had heard the same teaching. They had had the same opportunity, but these men wouldn't believe. He said, I can't tell you any more plainly than I've told you, but you will not believe. Why? That's the question we've been asking. We're right back to the introduction. Why? Why did these men not believe and the others believed? He tells you right here. Verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. He doesn't say I'm not letting you into my sheepfold because you will not believe. He says you don't believe because you're not my sheep. That's the opposite of what we've been told. Was it a real decision to come in repentant faith? Yes, but he showed you you didn't choose him. You came in repentant faith. You believed on him because you were his sheep. Because before the foundation of the world, you belonged to the Father, and the Father gave you to him. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I am the Father and one. Again and again and again and again he proclaims it. And this is the basis for our, people wonder, why does this matter? Why does this matter? Why would Paul harp on it? Why would you bring it up? Why would you do this? Because there is great danger in this. The reality is, I haven't made it through this sermon without saying something foolish. I, I, I'm not inerrant. I've messed up. At some point, I'm, I promise you, I'll go back and listen to this sermon. I'll go, why in the world did I say that? And was it bad enough that I need to come back and clean it up next week? Guaranteed. Guaranteed. So why would we go through this then? Why would we seek to truly understand what Paul says here? Because assurance is found in this. Assurance is found here. And the reality that before the foundation of the world, you were God's. And because it was nothing in you, it's nothing you can lose. Because it wasn't bound up in foreseen faith, you don't have to always be looking to the strength or the weakness of your faith. But the reality is your salvation is found in God's sovereign will. It removes all boasting. It removes all anxiety. It removes all doubt. Nothing but assurance. I am his because he has chosen me. He has given me to the Son. I am in the Son's hand, and the Son loses none. Over the top of the Son's hand is the Father's hand, and he loses none. This is why this matters. Because it's in the Father's sovereign will, his election, his choosing before the foundation of the world. Golly, I want to keep going. Um, one more. John 6. Jesus has fed the 5,000, and they come looking for more food. But instead, Jesus gives them this difficult teaching. He starts talking about the reality that you can't just come to him. Because that's... It's a, it's a picture of evangelism here, right? It's a picture of true evangelism. There are things that I could say to almost any man that at some level might entice them to come to Christ, or at least the version of Christ that I have portrayed to them. Look, the reality is, 
it's not hard to big, build a big church. You need a decent building. You need a few good musicians. You need a guy more handsome than me. And you got it. You make some promises. You talk about all the ways that God wants to bless you in this life right now. And you never talk about sin. You never talk about repentance. You never talk about union with Christ. You never talk about sincerity. You never talk about enduring. You never talk about suffering. You never talk about the reality that Jesus Christ must be the treasure, not the stuff that he gives. And so Jesus has fed the 5,000 and they chase him around the lake and they come to him and they're wanting more of this bread and Jesus knows this about him. And so he starts to talk in very difficult terms about eating his flesh, drinking his blood. He's talking about true communion, that we must be so close, that, that it, this is as if he is in us and we are in him and that, that, that we're feasting, we're finding everything that we need in life in him, that he is our very sustenance. And he says all these things and then everybody walks away. And again, Jesus isn't discouraged by this. It's not as though his promises have failed. It's not as though the, the, the gospel is not enough or he's somehow messed up in his presentation. You remember that he looks around at the other 12 and he wonders, why have you not also gone? But in, in the middle of all this, we see this in John six thirty seven. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Again, the Father has a people. The Father has given the people to the Son. And he's guaranteeing here that everyone who the Father, I want you to see this connection because this is key. Everyone who the Father gives to the Son will come to the Son. Those who come to the Son, he will never cast out. Talking about assurance again here. What was the start of this? Why did they come to Christ and why do they have assurance? Because the Father has given them to the Son. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. If you want to follow the flow of thought that Jesus has throughout John 6, it might be good to underline or to circle raised up on the last day. Again, it's assurance. It's the promise of glory. He says, I'm, I'm going to lose None. This is his will that I lose none of those he has given me. Those he has given me will come to me, guaranteed. Those who will come to me, I will never cast out, guaranteed. Those who he has given me and come to me and I don't cast out, I will raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have everlasting life and I will raise him up on the last day. It's the same people. The people he doesn't cast out, the people he raises up on the last day, the people again he says he will raise up on the last day. Those whom the Father has given him, those who will come to him, those he will never cast out, those are the ones who will look upon the Son and believe. Are you following the logic? Again, we hear Jesus talking about a, a people. You, you see this. Again, just follow the flow of thought. Work verse by verse through these teachings of Jesus and ask yourself, what's he actually saying here? but some Jews weren't happy with these bold statements and so we know that they, they come to him in verse, John 6, verse 43. Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Recognize that phrase? Same people. I won't cast them out I'll raise them up on the last day because the Father has given them and they come to me and I lose none that the Father has given me and they come to me and they look upon me and they believe in me. P people can get twisted up here because they can say, yeah, well, Jesus is drawing everyone. 
Jesus is drawing everyone, and by drawing everyone, he has enabled everyone, and therefore they can come. But again, look at the argument. He's talking about those whom he will raise on the last day. Who are those he will raise on the last day? Those the Father has given him. I know I'm beating a dead horse here, but the minute I get off of this platform, the moment I step away from this pulpit, traditions come rushing back in you. Yeah, but you've got to stay in this moment and see what the text says. Jesus later, later tells his disciples, John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were that did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. If Jesus wanted to say it in the, the most explicit and plain terms possible, wouldn't it be this? He's looking to his people who might be getting discouraged that the numbers aren't growing anymore. That every time the numbers do grow, he says something hard and they run away. These people that have gone out on mission and they come back and find many people don't like what Jesus has to say. There's still people that are accursed, cut off from God. And so what does he say to encourage them? Don't worry, those people can't come to me unless the Father draws, draws them. Therefore, what is my job? I praise and worship and pray to the Father. And I sow the seed. And I trust that all those whom the Father has given me will come to me. That all those the Father has given me, all those who come to me, all those will look upon me in faith, I will never cast them out, I will never lose them, I will never forsake them, and I will raise them up on the last day. This is the teaching of Scripture, dear friends. from Genesis to Revelation, that the God of the universe, to the praise of his glorious grace, has chosen a people to eliminate any sense of boasting, any sense of human differentials, anything that we might insert to try and believe that this is why God has chosen one or another. He is always turning things completely upside down. It's not that smart people can't come to the kingdom of God. It's not that rich people can't come to the kingdom of God because then what would we do? We'd hit ourselves in the heads with hammers, we'd go and become poor, and then God must choose us. He's not saying I chose these people because they are poor. I chose these people because they are stupid. I chose these people because they are lowly and nothing. What God is saying is I choose the last person you would ever expect so that you may know that my choosing is not based in you. So my choosing is not wrapped up in human wisdom or human works or even foreseen faith. How many people have you seen that had a pathway to heaven set before them? They grew up in Christian homes with Christian parents with the gospel preached and prayed over them every day of their life. They lived in an absolute cocoon, a bubble of scripture. Everything laid before them and they hated Jesus Christ like he was the devil. And then you find a man who hears the gospel once in his life. Nothing faithful about this man. He's never been faithful to a wife, not the 10 that he had before. He's never darkened the door of a church. He has no interest in the spiritual things. And one man simply comes and says, would you repent? And he says, all my life I have waited to hear this. Yes. Because the God of the universe chooses. He chooses. And every single one he has chosen will endure to the end.
so that we get to the end of this gospel, we get to the end of this lifetime, and we recognize that it is all to the praise of his glorious grace. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, that you are a choosing God because we would not have chosen you. We thank you, Father, that not only did you not choose us because of us, that in a very real sense, Father, you chose us in spite of us. That yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That yet while we were sinners, you brought us to life with him. That yet while we were sinners, upon hearing that gospel, you had called us to life and brought us to repentant faith in your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Father, that because of this, anxiety is gone. That this is the only basis for a perseverance of the saints that can only be had if the God of the universe perseveres his saints. So, Father, I ask now that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. We would worship you as you are. We would sing songs of praise to you, not merely with our lips, but with our hearts, and that you would be glorified. For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.